the most popular films for which you have composed is Mel Gibson's Passion of Christ. The film covers the last 12 hours of Jesus Christ's life before his martyrdom. What inspires you to be a part of this movie? And can you please share with us your experience working on and composing music for it? Um, well, it was an interesting process because I worked, um, I, I, I worked with, um, with Mel Gibson and Steve McAveedy, who were the, Steve had produced most of Mel, Mel's sort of big movies. I worked with them for 15 months. I started just doing, uh, I, was, I was actually called initially uh, to do music research. And so I, I traveled to about 20 countries through uh, Europe and uh, North Africa, Asia, and, uh, and Eastern Europe as well, and to the, to the um, United Arab Emirates. And I basically uh, recorded uh, as much kind of folk music as I could from those countries that might be connected because um, Mel Gibson was very interested in the idea of what music might have sounded like 2000 years ago. And because most, most of the things that we know about the history of music, very simple expression like flutes and drums, right? Things that you could hit with your hands and things that you could play where, you know, the original flute was basically just a hollow reed and then they would put holes in it and make different uh, lengths, depending on placing your fingers on the holes in the reed. And that, that goes back to ancient times, those things. And so, you know, there certainly there were things like uh, gongs, there were certainly things like um, percussion instruments that were not just drums. Um, there were sort of crude trumpets, as far as we can understand, where people would blow through a, a brass instrument and create, create a sound. Um, but, you know, the, the Chinese were sort of more responsible for the origins of music than people understand. They really started with the first concept of a scale of, of uh, being able to measure tone and measure tone against one another, other tones. So there's a very interesting history if, if people would, are, you know, are interested in looking at it, if you read about the origins of music. But uh, a lot of that early work that I did was just going around to all these countries and recording artists. And a lot of that was just finding people who actually played authentic music to their own histories. And so I would bring back recordings to the set because the, you know, the, 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 the shoot lasted for quite a long time. It was supposed to go for originally for about eight weeks and it ended up going for almost 14 weeks. So I would go to these countries, travel back to the set in Italy, play music for Mel and for Steve and talk about sort of the direction of it. Uh, and then once the film was done, through that 15 month process, it was the longest I'd ever worked on a film. Usually you'll get six weeks, eight weeks at the end of a film to write the music and do it. So this was a very different experience, but it really taught me a lot because I got to, I really got to see the process of how that particular director, Mel, Mel Gibson made films um, because he's very, very interesting and, and creative guy. But it was, it was also a challenge because you know, there was so much about the movie which was kind of rooted in a very narrow view of Christianity. And, um, and so it, while, while I think it was still an inspiring film, it was also a controversial film. And so I had really interesting discussions with Mel, who was actually proud that he had people from different religions working on the film. And there was a, a documentary made, which never saw the light of day called The Big Question, which was about the making of the film. And, you know, he had Jewish people and Muslim people and 
Baha'i people and all these different religions working on it. Of course, maybe lots of Christians as well. And, and I think for Mel, because he kind of grew up in a narrow area of education about what Christianity was, the, sign, the kind of signs of anti-Semitism were in the film. And it's unfortunate. I, I, I had a tough time on it. And I also had a tough time because Mel wasn't the kind of person who could very easily describe what it is that he wanted. And, and directors really vary, you know, directors really vary. And, and he'd worked with people who were, you know, far, far excelled me in terms of capacity to score a film. Uh, he worked with um, James Horner, you know, <laughs> on Braveheart, which is an incredibly great score. But there was this sense that we wanted to try to make the music sort of feel like it was natural to the time, which is a really challenging thing to do. And eventually, um, you know, when I started scoring it, uh, it was, there was a lot of music, about 20, maybe 20, 25 minutes of music that, of mine that ended up in the film. But he eventually went back to a guy in Hollywood named John Debney, and John actually did the, the major part of the scoring. So I've always, um, you know, I valued the experience. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I wrote a lot of music that I really loved and, and continue to use. <laughs> but the disunity of it, the controversy of it, uh, was challenging. And it was also a pretty brutal film. So it, it becomes a, a challenging job when it when religion, faith meets music and one has one purpose and the other has another purpose in my mind, in my heart. And so uh, I'll always value those kinds of experiences and I've had lots of them through my 50 years of writing music. And you know, remember, it's not called the enlightenment business. It's not called the empowerment business. It's called the entertainment business. And much of it has stayed at that level. Even, even with, I think, you know, Mel's effort was very sincere. He wanted to tell the story of Jesus in a very unique way. It's very interesting hearing the process of meshing the two together of music and religion, especially because this film is something unique. It's not just a film um, that is in that entertainment sense of, you know, like a rom-com or something like that. It's a, it's a film that is really trying to tell the history and the story while also trying to find music that represents that time period, learning about the history of music and trying to make it as authentic as possible. Um, and I think one thing that you mentioned about the history of music and how a lot of these cultures all have instruments that are very similar is something that I've always noticed and I've always found really interesting. Like for example, um, in, in Persian instruments, we have an instrument called the ney, which like you were saying is like a flute that has you know different holes in it, um, but it's just like a reed but it's very hard to play. It's interesting that one of the most beautiful instruments in the world is the duduk, which was sort of founded in Armenia. And it's like a double reed instrument that's, that's almost like a flute, but it's, but it's a double reed instrument. It's like an oboe. Yeah. And uh, the player I worked with, Levon Manassian, uh, plays with Peter Gabriel. And I recorded a bunch of pieces for the passion that ended up in the film because they were just so extraordinarily beautiful. Um, and I recorded them in a hotel room in Paris, just with um, Levon and I sitting, singing ideas back and forth to one another. So sometimes it's just that simple, right? It's just music because you love it. And the style of music in Armenia or the name of the music that they call the, 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 that the Duduk plays or, the, or, the, or that's represented by the Duduk is called Suffering Love. 
and I and there's no other way to express the founders of the religions of God than suffering love because they loved humanity enough to sacrifice lives and comfort and <laughs> so much more and uh, and yet they were prepared to suffer and so I thought suffering love was such a, a great a, a name for that music that that instrument plays and I asked Levon, sort of, you know, what were his favorite things to do? And he said, well, he loved playing with Peter Gabriel because every night he could make Peter Gabriel cry. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's, that's, that's a powerful thing, you know, to be able to, uh, to be able to stimulate the emotions of a human being simply through the vibration of the tympanum of the ear. Amazing. It really is amazing. Like when we talk about it, it seems like something so simple or something that's like so easy to grasp. But really, the more and more, especially throughout this conversation we're having, as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, wow, this is like, this is a very, very big thing that I don't think, you know, we'll ever be able to fully, fully grasp. There's something important to say about, about that, that I, that I think that young people should know. Um, there's a composer, French composer named Maurice Ravel. Um, he said an interesting thing. He said that art begins where technique ends. So you have to study and you have to learn. And even if you teach yourself, you'll spend years trying to learn to play an instrument so that you can, you can play without thinking about technique, yeah. that, that your, your technique allows you to express beauty without uh, too much uh, in between. In other words, that you, you allow the, the, the musician, the performer to become an instrument through which that love flows to others. Right? And, that, and, and that's really a great principle that, that, that I think everybody from Beethoven to <laughs> to rebel to contemporary composers uh, struggle to understand and to express. I, I love that quote because I think it's, it's really, really true. I think one thing that we always talk about and that we think about, especially like in an orchestral setting at school and things like that when we play on ensembles is when do you actually start expressing that artistry out of your music and then not just being notes on a page that you're playing properly and your intonation's correct and you're doing this phrasing and all of that. But when does it really start becoming art? And then we can start actually expressing what it is that we want to express through our music and what we're really feeling about it. It's really crucial I like that, that the technique becomes second nature to creative expression. Yeah. And, and, it, and there's no set way to do that. It's not like many people think. Oh, if I if I study classical music and I, and I become a, uh, you know an incredible virtuoso player, that I'll be able to then you know uh, do more. Right? Um, the people who never never uh, took a lesson in their lives, uh, who just have a gift and who develop that gift through their hard work and their perseverance and their love of it. <laughs> That's, that's a, a totally legitimate way to be able to, to achieve that level of creative expression. Um, Seals and Crofts uh, 
are such an interesting example because they never studied. They just worked at it and they learned to play. And you listen to the writing, uh, especially the writing of Jimmy Seals in terms of the voicings on the guitar, the progressions, the types of melodies, the combination of lyric, the ability to express in lyrics, some very kind of essential and kind of thoughtful ideas. It, it's really profound. And that, that, that didn't come from studying classical music, <laughs> you know, or, or playing, playing in bands where all the notes were on the page. We also talked about this a little bit throughout the previous questions. Um, and I think you touched on it a little bit, but what does success mean to you and how has your definition of success evolved throughout your life and career? Such a, such a good question. And I, I don't think there's ever, ever one answer to it. I think um, success should be measured by what you do with the talent that you have. I don't, I don't think there's any other measurement. Um, I don't, I don't think it depends on on money. I don't think it depends on um, fame. I don't think it depends on any of that. I think it depends on you, me, everybody that loves the, the, the form, that art form of music, because music is both form and expression and spirit. Um, you know, spirit, spirit and expression being that thing that people talk about finding your voice. Well, it doesn't mean necessarily singing. It means finding out what's important to you and how, to what degree have you developed the capacities that you've been given as your, your, whatever your gifts are, whatever your talents are. I think that's a greater measure always of success. I think that it's helpful if you can make a living. <laughs> it's hard to make a living at music. I think the number of people proportionately to who want to and who do is, is very small. And I don't say it to be discouraging because I actually feel it will change. I think we're moving towards a society where these things will be more greatly valued, where they'll be also compensated better, um, where there'll be a greater appreciation for what art, art contributes to society. In Iceland, for example, once you achieve a certain level of, of expression and perfection, I, I don't know what the standards are, uh, the government pays you to be an artist. Right? Oh. Yeah. Unthinkable, you would think, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but it, I think that's where we're moving, a peaceful society, a harmonious society that will actually value art and these forms of creative expression more than how they're currently valued. I love hearing that. And I, I love the way that you said for us to gauge what success is, what can you do with your talent? Really, what are you able to do with what you have to help make the world a better place? Um, and I think the way that you put it is, is like the perfect way to think about it. And so in the same spirit, uh, what considerations do you feel are over or undervalued when choosing a career in music, specifically composition, as we talked about a little bit now, but what other aspects do you think are still over or undervalued in our society today? Well, I, I think that fame is overvalued. I think that it is actually harmful to people. And I've worked with a lot of famous people through my life and I haven't met many happy ones. Um, and I, it's not a criticism. I just think the society actually creates a condition. Uh, you watch any of the documentaries about young artists today and how their struggles to be able to have some, you know, freedom, some way of, uh, 
of living a normal life. And I don't really know what the answer is because we've built a structure, as Joni Mitchell says, stoking the star maker machinery behind the popular songs. <laughs> as, as only Joni Mitchell could say, but I think it's, I think it's indicative of a problem that we have in the society where we glorify people beyond what they sh how they should be glorified. We should have a greater appreciation certainly of what music and art is, but it's, it's always, it's always seems to be in extremes, right? And then, and then there's a perpetuation of, of what I call the mediocre, which is that so much of the music that we hear really is about nothing. <laughs> or as Jimmy Seals used to say, haven't we had enough baby I love you, baby I don't love you songs. <laughs> you know, I remember one of my kids used to say, how come there's so many babies in songs? <laughs> and so we're kind of stuck, aren't we? Like we're kind of stuck as a society in believing that all that is so important and that that's all we can sing about, right? That's what I loved about Seals and Crofts. They were singing about the oneness of the human race. They were, Songs like Year of Sunday, you know, just songs like uh, We May Never Pass This Way Again, you know, songs like East of Jinju Tree, songs that really were about something other than romantic love. <laughs> and granted, romantic love is important to people, but how much more important is it that we address significant issues through music and art that are holding us back from being fulfilled as a human race, right? I, I always say that if, if you, uh, you know, if you can, if you can sort of expand your world and try to write about uh, other things, <laughs> write, you know, romantic love is certainly important, but the, the guardian of the Baha'i faith was a man named Shoghi Effendi, and he actually married a Canadian woman named Mary Maxwell. So we've always felt a close kinship to him in Canada and, and, and in North America, obviously. And he had great hopes for the for North America as a part of the world that could lead the rest of the world in spirituality, right? But it's so interesting that he said a very it's just something that is so thought provoking. He said, you know, in when societies or civilizations are in decline, there's a much greater emphasis on physical love. But we don't think about that really, and you don't see artists really taking that to issue. So what? Why are we so focused on sexuality? Why are we so focused on romance? Why are we so focused on love lost and love gained? You know, I think, I think we could write, again, those are all legitimate things, but why can't we write about other subjects? You know, yeah. uh, I, I, think, I think it really would be like, it would be so compelling if artists themselves became leaders. Yeah. Right? Baha'u'llah actually says, Baha'u'llah says that the artists are the eyes and ears of humanity. So let's become that. <laughs> let's actually embody that. Um, and I think this all goes back to the idea of really what impact is our music having on society today and how much does it perpetuate what we see in society? I, I just want to say one, one more thing about that because I think one of the trends is that we're taking music away from people. If you went to a black church anywhere in the United States, you would you would feel like you were part of that music. You know, there are lots of there are lots of communities that have 
a lot of music in them, which is an expression for them of the importance of their community, why they have cohesion, why they have love all over the world. I, I spent some time in the Congo uh, working with a choir that went to sing at the Baha'i World Center in 2001. And those kids would walk, they were literally in their teens and early 20s, they would walk you know, for three hours to get to a rehearsal. And it was very hot and uh, no, not much public transportation. And a lot of the people you know, suffered from malaria and other kind of challenges that you had in the Congo and Kinshasa. And boy, when they came, they sang with their hearts, you know, just like stuff I'll never forget that just moved you to tears because their music reflected not just their struggles and their pain, but it was a way that they could express joy. And, um, and you'd go to a Baha'i meeting and they'd sing for hours sing for hours and so i really feel like um we're, we've taken that away with part of what we call pop music or popular music we've taken away the, the idea that, that communities can sing you might have that experience if you go to a concert sing along with the 15 songs that you hear that night or 20 or whatever and you'll feel part of something but there's so little that reflects how your family feels about music and how your maybe the people that you spend the most time with feel about music and how it becomes part of your community uh, and, and an expression of your community. And that's really, I think, one of, one of the things that's happened with uh, like what I call uh, glorification of, of uh, individuals rather than the glorification of music <laughs> yeah. and, and art yeah. and, exp and creative expression. Because every, everyone has the capacity to sing. You know that Abdu'l-Bahá said that every child should be trained in the art of singing and music. Every child. That means that every child can sing. And every child can learn music. And what a difference that would make to us. Because there's a great structure and system in South America. It's really struggling now with what's going on in Venezuela. But... Um, Professor Antonio Abreu started a program. He's not with us anymore, but he started a program called El, El Sistema. And his goal was that the kids in the favelas, if you taught them, if you put an instrument in their hand, a musical instrument, they would never pick up a weapon because of the crime rate in these places, because of the poverty and social uh, just degradation is, is so bad. And he's put a million, they put a million, put a million kids through that program that learned to play an instrument, to love music, and therefore act in a way that was different, you know? act in a way that would be, uh, give them a better life. It's making me cry. No, if you get a chance. If you get a chance, you should listen to the recordings of the Simone Bolivar Orchestra. It's an orchestra of 250, you know, late teens, or early 20s, uh, who 
have become one of the best orchestras in the world. And it's full of all those kids. <laughs> it's really, really inspiring. That needs to happen in every room, right? Not just little fires burning here, but all over the world. I think from from everything that you shared with us um, is the fact that music is something that changes the human spirit. It changes the human heart, changes how we think. And it goes back to that idea that I just don't think we fully can comprehend, at least right now, the value that music has beyond just the entertainment world, beyond the purpose of making money, beyond the purpose of just making us happy to make us happy or cause controversy and things like that. Music has a power to change people's hearts. And it doesn't mean that just because you go pick up an instrument or you sing, you're trying to become a singer or musician. It doesn't mean that just because it's a big part of your life, um, you know, you have to dedicate your whole life to it. But it is something that you will always carry with you. That's something that my mom has always told me that, you know, from all the instruments I play, from singing, from hearing her sing, from, from music being a part of my life to dancing and things like that. She's always told me, you don't do this to become a musician. If you want to become a musician, go for it. But I'm not putting you in these to make you a musician that's going to become famous so that you have to dedicate your whole life to it. But it'll always be something that you carry with you that will be in your heart um, and that, you know, you can always use it to make you happy. You can always use it to make an impact. You can always use it um, to help you through whatever. And, and personally speaking, music has helped me through so many challenges in my life. Mm. It's always been there. And hearing the stories Beautiful. that music has this power to change people all around the world and the programs that there are available to do this, um, from things like El Sistema to, to the number of things going on around the world is just, it's mind boggling how it is. And I think it gets to a point where we start becoming frustrated of like, why isn't this something that is so universally understood or valued and why is it so hard for our society to, to put the two together so I think that's part of why I started crying but just... no but it's true you see we we have so many big issues uh, that we have to figure out and uh, I think if we were to rely more on imagination and creative expression we actually could could have a more significant impact, not just as a community, but as artists, yeah. uh, to, to be able to change those things. You know, the, one of the things that Mahalo talked about in the 19th century was that the, 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 in order for humanity to progress, the world had to be completely demilitarized. Yeah. So that, you know, all of the money that's spent, if any part of those resources were put into educating children and educating them about creative expression and how to you know make better lives for themselves any any part of that would be a significant contribution to humanity's progress but we continue uh, to live in this world where we try to preserve nationhood and the idea of self-sovereign nations in a world that's clearly interdependent so really the the core the core message that we should be sending out as as musicians is let's let's bring about social justice let's let's diminish the gap between the rich and the poor let's demilitar demilitarize the world let's stop uh, ignorance of climate change and these things that are happening to us as a planet and and 
let especially young people arise and use these powers of creative expression to make those uh, changes so that our generations will, will have a better life. We need to change the things that we are accepting too easily. <laughs> like these self-sovereign nations that are all trying to improve their security, they say, <laughs> by arming themselves to the teeth and spending so much money on weaponry and armies and all the research that goes into weaponry. And um, th these, these things really are, are costing us more than we can imagine in terms of the, the cost to human progress and the cost to future generations. I think it's time for the world to start understanding that these things are doable, that it's possible, mm -hmm. and yes. for youth to really believe in themselves and believe in each other and come together and be united because when, when things aren't done with a good spirit and for everybody to come together for the better of all, how long can it really last? Yeah. Um, so those are all things to think about and, and a lot to process. And I hope that it's something our viewers, especially youth, um, whether there are viewers or not, you know, just in general in the world, start realizing and coming together to do that. Um, so finding a way to move on from this very, very deep conversation, um, but still in the same spirit and along the lines of what we're talking about, um, how has your career and success been a vehicle for promoting the ideas of unity, the oneness of humanity, justice, and the importance of service? The answer on part three of Composition and Music with Jack Lenz. Be sure to tune in to The Spirit of Success on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out. Bye!